things Americans in survey after survey says, they want confidentiality. Americans want to have another person that they can share with whatever it is and they know that it's going to stay there. Now, you've heard me say before in the church, confidentiality is telling one person at a time. That's being confidential, but... And in the covenant of relationship, there's no covenant more intense than marriage. And you always find great wise sayings about marriage. Uh, the great philosopher Rodney Dangerfield said, the secret of protecting our marriage is we go out to a candlelit dinner and soft music and dancing twice a week. I go Tuesdays, she goes on Fridays. <laughs> this is great, uh, Ambrose Beer said, love is temporary insanity that is cured only by marriage. This is, listen to Socrates. My advice is find a wife and enter into marriage. If she's good, you'll find happiness. If not, you'll become a philosopher. <laughs> no comment on that. Of course, Lily Tomlin said, if love is the answer, would you mind rephrasing the question? And God is talking to his people through the prophet and saying that I love you. The message of Amos is all the eighth century prophets B.C., it's roughly in the year 750 B.C. Hosea is down in the south and Isaiah, Joel, and Amos in the north. And that behind the curtain of history, there is another hand at work. A meta-history, if you will, underneath the history. All the little things you're going on in your life, they're not pre-rigged. He's not saying that. It's not determinism. But God is working out his will. And one of the things that we see as we come to this day is that there is no freedom without discipline. Abraham Lincoln said that. If you want to be free, you have to have discipline. Well, what did he mean? He means the idea that I want to be freed from all constraints is nonsense. There are always going to be constraints. You pick what's ones. If you're not bound by the higher laws, you become a slave of the lower laws. If we wanted to be free from gravity, which humanity did forever before the Wright brothers, you, the only way you stop gravity is you're bound to the rules of aerodynamics. A higher rule overrules it. The moment aerodynamics stops, like your wings fall off, you, gravity takes back over. If you want to have the freedom to invest in the marketplace, great. All you need is a willing buyer and a willing seller. You got to have those. Super Bowl today. That it's arbitrary laws and rules of the NFL that after 10 yards, you get four new chances to score. Could have been 15, could have been 32. What's not arbitrary within that is the laws of physics. What happens to that football when it is thrown or run or kicked? All these other laws are underneath that. And you and I, when we want to be free, if I had enough money, I'd be free. If I had a better life, if I had a better opportunity, I'd be free. What about God? God is sovereign is the theological statement. He is totally free. What that means is God will do whatever God wants. It's the advantage of being God. Was well, anything thwart the will of God? Amos says, yes. God's will is confined by one thing, his covenant of holy love. That God has made a place in his heart for you and I, and he constrains his power freely of his own will to be able to enter into relationship with us. And because Amos would say, if you said describe God, he'd say one word, the maker of the covenant. God's freedom, his sovereignty means he initiated this covenant. God loved us first. You didn't talk God into loving you. He loved you long before you even knew him. Second of all, God bestows on you and me the freedom whether to respond. This is not a guarantee. He has doomed us to freedom in that sense that we can choose to that. 
But the third thing is when we break covenant, when we breach contract, so to speak, with God, God is the one who restores. He loved us in the beginning, he watches us grow in the middle, and God is gonna love us to the very end. And in the midst of these very difficult words by Amos, he points this out to them. Well, for any of you that are visiting or watching online, that to first of all, a review of a couple of these maps that we have. First of all, a map of Israel, if you have no idea where that's at, and you've been in a coma, that Israel, of course, in the year 750 BC, you notice these huge kingdoms, by the way. The, up in Anatolia, present-day Turkey, there were these huge kingdoms, the Hittites, the Assyrians, Babylon, and Egypt. Israel was a zit of a nation compared to them. And God makes this political vacuum so he can bring his little people, his people, which shows you God's never impressed with big. What's big to God? What's small to God? He brings them up. But as Assyria is now knocking Syria for a loop, that Israel has the northern kingdom. They've had a civil war, remember. The 10 northern tribes have money gushing for the very rich. You imagine if we liquidated our military budget in the United States and gave us all a piece of the action? That's what's going on. But they're leaving the poor behind. And so Amos goes up north, and the next map, remember, the nation's closer. He's from down in Jerusalem, down south, you see, and he travels up north of the, by the Sea of Galilee. Woe to Damascus! For three sins and for four of Edom, for three sins and for four of Philistia. And God is saying, I am God of all the nations. And notice God judges them not for what the wacky things they believe. He doesn't even judge them for how they're treating Israel. He holds them accountable for how they treat each other. I want to tell you something in this election year, one thing you're not going to hear much from the pulpits, but boy, I want you to hear it. Pray that the United States honors its treaties. This is serious stuff to God, according to Amos. And what is held, but he holds them to a higher standard. He says to Israel and Judah, though, you are different. God is the God of America. God is the God of Canada. God is the God of Brazil. God is the God of Iran. God is the God of Russia and of Ukraine. But he says to the church, I have a different expectation for you around the world because you are part of my kingdom and my people. And so he is working this whole, behind all of history, God is doing something. We got your Bible. Turn with me over to the ninth chapter as we, this fascinating book it's, that we're coming to an end and studying. Page 749. And God is saying to them, you're not honest with me or yourself. Older guy went out to uh, Dunkin' Donuts with his old buddies and uh, he says, got good news, I'm getting married. They go, you are? They go, at 75? He goes, yeah. They go, how old is he? He said, 35. He said, 35? Then one of them said, you lied about your age, didn't you? And he said, yeah. How old did you tell him, tell her that you were? He said, I told her I was 90. <laughs> Some of you will get that later on, but uh, not have to be with the boy a long time. But here in the first verse, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. A pause. All the four other visions before this, remember, he saw the locusts, he saw the fire, he saw the plumb line, he saw the summer fruit, and God showed him these visions. Now he sees the Lord standing by the altar. It's interesting it's not the word Yahweh, even though they put that here. It's not the tetragrammaton, the four letters 
You know, Yahweh means becoming I am who I am. Av means to have. Havan Nagila means becoming a party, making a celebration. Your Jewish friends sing. This is not Yahweh, which is normally the capitalized Lord. This is Adoni, the Lord. And so it's interesting he doesn't use his covenant name here. And he, he sees him. Thou shalt not look upon me or you shall die, God said to Moses. But how can he see him? Well, just like Isaiah, his contemporary, we read last week. I saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple. Seeing God does not diminish his de deity. That he sees this image of God. And this is before the incarnation, the Bethlehem event. When God the Son put on flesh and invaded this planet to bring grace to these babies and to you and to me. That God, this is before that, and he sees him. And the Lord says, strike the capitals. That means the top of the pillars. Until the threshold shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. By the way, Kaftor is also the name for where the Philistines came, which you just read. And so what God is saying is, this is not happenstance. This is not the fates, like the Greeks' fate, weaving together what the gods will have to do. This is not just physics. This is me. And I am personally involved in this. And for you and I as believers, we're having coming up... Um, Kim is bringing with others uh, Biologus, which is a conference. We're going to have to have the head, Mark Diamond, of the 300 rabbis here in Los Angeles, as well as Richard Fuller, uh, Richard Mao from Fuller Seminary, as well as from the Laos, and talking about origins and evolution and the question of how to what place can a people of faith believe that. And the questions of origin is so important. You and I can't be a deist if you're a Christian. You can't believe that God pull-started this thing and just lets it run. That God right now is involved in holding your heart and the breath and the hairs on your head. He is this involved with the molecular and the cosmos world. He's that big. And he's saying to Israel, I am involved in the, what you think is happenstance that is out there. And then look at verses 2 through 4. We've got to read this together out loud. This stuff is made to be read out loud. It's a preacher. Let's read this. Though they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search out and take them. And though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the sea serpent and it shall bite them. And they go into captivity in front of their enemies. There I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes on them for harm and not good. Wow. What he's saying is, you can't hide from me. You can't play bait and switch. You can't play then I'm going to follow that. You can't say, Lord, over there, like a shell game. Do we ever do that? Do you ever think we can trick God? I don't know how many times after I gave my life to Christ after high school when I was going to particular parties, I would say, Lord, you stay in the car for a couple hours. I'll be out afterward. He'll do this, you know. He says, no, he's, he's with us. And the idea that God is being good over here, he sees it all. He dwells in the eternal now. And the question about this, theodicy is the question that all religions have to answer. It means the justice of God. And the two big questions in Scripture... I always say there's a third one in L.A., but in Scripture is, why do the righteous suffer, and why do the wicked prosper? In L.A., it's why do the stupid prosper. But why? Why does God have good people go through tough stuff, and bad people get away with murder? And it's a statement of who is God. And God says here, and he never ducks this, 
Notice this tough verse at four. And I will fix my eyes on them for harm and not good. The RSV dodged the word there. It's ra'ah. It means evil. And what they're saying is they're theologically interpreting for you rather than just leaving the raw word there. Because James says, and when you are tempted, not, do not let any man say I am tempted by God, for he himself cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt with evil. God can't want you to, have, to do evil. He's a holy God. Then why the word ra'ah here? Because it really is harm, but it means something you would never want to happen to you again. Evil is something that's not sin he's talking about. Evil. Good is when you have it happen, you go, I want to repeat. I'll take a second dose of that. That was good. God says, I am bringing harm. Remember, it's not because he's angry and he's just trying to take it out on them. He's trying to get them, we saw last week, to bend the knee, but they won't turn around and come back to the Lord. And so he, he says, I will do this. Well, can't God make it right without me changing? And the answer is no. One of the things God cannot do, theologians will tell you, is nonsense. You can't put two words that contradict each other together and say, can God, and imply that you've said something about the Lord. You've said something about language. Can God, remember in high school philosophy, can God make a rock too big for him to pick up? Well, if he can, he must not be God. It's nonsensical. God is outside of time and space. You haven't said anything about a rock or God. Can God make yellow be blue at the same time? You haven't said anything about God. Yellow and blue are different by definition. It's how you've arranged language. Can God give you and me freedom and take away the consequences of our choices is nonsensical. God can't do it. We haven't said anything about him. We've talked about us. And God has given this physical world, and I can use it for good or for bad. I can use this to help you if you're drowning and I'm in a rowboat, or I can use this to push you away from my boat so I can have your food. The wood doesn't matter. God has given us opportunity to use all sorts of things for good or evil, and it's us as humans that determine that. And here the Lord is saying, one is his prescriptive will, the other is his permissive will. Is it the teacher's will when she says, I want you to come tomorrow on Saturday morning for a study session for the test on Monday so that you'll do well. You don't have to come, but I want you to. And only two of the class showed up. Was that the teacher's will? Well, yes. The teacher's will allowed it, but it wasn't her desire. When a parent says to their child, quit cheating off of your friends, because when you get to the test, you're not gonna be able to do this. Do your own work, but that's up to you. And the kid decides not to do it, and he continues just to cheat till he gets to the test, and he flunks. Well, was it the parent's will that the child flunked? No, but the parent's will allowed it. In the same way, God has given to us all these opportunities and things. God doesn't wish sin upon anybody, but God allows this because he has given us in this broken world what God allows sometimes I can't understand. Sometimes the pain, the heartache, I'm working with a gentleman now and we're doing his funeral. He is such a great guy and he is dying of cancer and the Lord leaves the sleaze balls behind that he does. I can't connect those dots. When these little children here, and I had the horrible experience, every nightmare of a parent or of a pastor, these little caskets, when a child dies who did nothing wrong, and you say, God, where are you? And then we go into laments. The lament is when we say, God, why? 
And it's not just that we want an intellectual answer, but God, why did you allow this? Why? And the psalm of laments are basically in the psalms. God, I'm hurting. You're not doing anything. God, the bad guys are winning. God, you're not listening. And all those we experience in our life. But on the other side, when I go and I look at this cross, I love you people. 77% of you, I really care about. <laughs> but if it came between you and my children, my son, you lose. Not so with God. And so we don't understand in his order, his power. And look what he says over here in verse seven. Are you not like the Ethiopians to me, O people of Israel, says the Lord. This is shocking. Did I not bring Israel from the land of Egypt? The central event of the Old Testament, yes. And the Philistines from Kaftor, which is really Crete. And the Arameans from Kerr, that's Arameans. It would have been the Armenians from Burbank, but that's not what he said. He said the <laughs> Arameans from Kerr. The Lord God is on the eye upon the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it, but I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. So God's sovereignty is that he cares for us. Periodically, he will suspend his normal order of doing things to reveal something about himself. We call that the miraculous. And answered prayer is where God uses the desires of our heart and his science and people to answer prayer. The miraculous is when he does something out. And it's kind of a mulligan. If you let everybody you're not playing golf get a mulligan on every swing, you're not playing golf anymore. You're just out there walking. But periodically, God will pull, if you will, a cosmic mulligan, don't ever quote me on that, to allow to show something of himself, but he likes his normal order, that he's doing things. And what God is doing is something greater than we can believe. Turn with me over to Romans, again, to the eighth chapter, page 919 in your pew Bible. And we see how God answers prayer. Like the atheist that said, I, you know, I was lost in the desert out here, I went to Burning Man and got drunk, went the wrong way, walking through the desert, and I prayed to God, and God never answered. I don't believe in God. And they said, well, how'd you make it back? He goes, oh, I don't know. After a day, some crazy Navajo came by and picked me up in his pickup and brought me in. But I don't believe in answered prayer. And a lot of people do that. They so set up that God must not have answered because they only say this thin way. Look what he says here in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. Pause, I believe in the gift of tongues. I don't believe everybody has that gift, but I think there are people in Bel Air that has. And I ask them to pray in their tongue for Bel Air. It's not for yourself. But I don't think he's talking about tongues here. He's saying that when the Holy Spirit, and this is this little picture of the triune God, when he sees your, and he's reading my life today and yours, the Spirit speaking to the Father, and there's no good analogies for the Trinity. It's not three gods or one God in three costumes. It's one God, three persons, and there's no good analogies because God's not one in a series of events. But if you had two people that were so close and their relationship had its own will and it had been forever and they were all divine, that would be who God is. But the Spirit right now is looking at you and he's asking the Father for something. And do you know what he's asking? He's obsessed about this glorifying the son. And so he's praying on your behalf and mine. I think I know what I need. I need to lose some weight, I need to have people be nice to me, and I need to be really rich. That's what I think I need. And God says, no, I think you need something else. Look at this. 
27, and God who searches the heart knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things therefore work together for good with those who love God who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of a large family. And those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. What should we say at this? If God is for us, who in the cosmos is against us? He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for us, will he not give us all things with him? And so even as Amos is saying God is sovereign over all the nations, he's saying he is sovereign over us individually. This is not rigged. And Presbyterians are known for predestination. And Presbyterians, Calvin in his teaching, trying to understand from eyes of God if he knows everything, Predestination would say this side of the room is predestined whether you like it or not, and this side is predestined to damnation whether you like it or not. This group is saved, this group is lost. Aren't you glad you sat in this group over here? And what they're trying to say is, is that nothing made God, even though we have freedom, I don't understand total sovereignty and freedom any more than when science people try to explain to me how light can be a particle and wave at the same time, though it can't be, but it is. But the idea is that it's not that God looked down the halls of eternity and he saw Mark Brewer one day after high school and I gave my life to Christ and God went, I didn't want to save him, but he gave his life to Jesus. What can I do now, you know? <laughs> that I somehow forced it upon him. But that God, and what glorifies Jesus the most, and when you, serious about this. Think of everything he's made. When you and me are in the image of Christ, that will glorify him like nothing. When God speaks to this dirt out here, it instantly obeys. When God speaks to us, we go, maybe we will, maybe we won't. And the Holy Spirit is so powerful as he sets up these things, the tough things we go through, the wonderful things we go through. And it doesn't play out all the time the way he wanted because of our sinful state. But he says, even when you break covenant, I will bring this around to the ending I want. Amos is in the north. He has a peer in the south. We don't know for sure if they really ever met each other, but the message is unbelievably the same. Last passage of scripture. Turn with me over to the book of Hosea. Page 730 in your pew Bible. Hosea 1 in God's message. Where Amos is a rancher and a shepherd and a landscaper, a keeper of sycamore trees. This is not so of Hosea, but look at the job description this guy gets. Verse two. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take for yourself a wife of whoredom, a prostitute, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore a son. So God says to the preacher, wow, talk about an illustration. I want you to go down here to Ventura Boulevard, pick up a working girl. I want you to marry her because my people are sleeping around on me. So Jose goes, okay. <laughs> Verse four, I wonder how he explained that to his wife. But, um, and the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel, for in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And that word means 
sown. And what he's saying is, so he gets this hooker, he marries her, their first kid, God says, call him Jezreel, because I'm about to do this. She gets pregnant again, verse six. She conceives and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I no longer have pity on the house of Israel to forgive them. But I will have pity on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or sword or war or horses or horsemen, in other words, but by word. So he has a second child. The word Ruth means kindness or gracious. Lo is no in Hebrew. Lo Ruth, lo Ruhama, no grace. Call this kid Jezreel, call this kid no pity, because I will have no pity on you. She has a third, eight. When she weaned lo Ruhama, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, name him lo Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. So he has these children. And he has them in his name, and so they call him in the morning. Hosea says to his hooker wife, where's Loami? Where's not my child? Where's no pity? Where are they at? And there's words in it. It's kind of like, I like the uh, sweet scene of the old man, the old woman, and she was dying, and he says, honey, I just got one question of you. She said, yes, honey. He said, you know, the four kids we've had, the last one, I've just got to ask you. I, totally, it's cool, whatever happens, but... He looks different than the other kids. He acts different than the other kids. Is our fourth child ours? And she took his hand and said yes. Not the other three. But take a look at (laughs) what God is saying here. He is saying, yes, keep those emails coming in. So as God is (laughs) saying to him, these are my children. And so then he says that this is a prostitute wife. She goes back to the street. And look what God says in verse two to Israel, like the children. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Oh, that she would put her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Or I will strip her naked and expose her the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness and turn her into a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children I will have no pity, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, she has conceived them as acted shamefully. And here's the whole crux. For she said, I will go after my lovers. They are the ones who give me my bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. And I will hedge upon her with thorns and a wall around her so she cannot find her path. She shall pursue her lovers and not overtake them. She shall seek them and not find them. She will say, I will go and return to my first husband at least, for it was better with me than now. For she did not know it was I who gave her all these things. Unbelievable. God says, tell your mother don't, but I'm gonna put a hedge around her so she can knock out. Because the sin was, she said, the world gave me my money, my attention, and all the things I knew. And God says, I gave this to you. So I will put a wall so you can't go to your lovers. God is saying, this is unbelievable. After you have slept around with everything with legs, and you have played the whore, and you have worshiped everything and denied me, please come back to me if I'm your last choice. Even if you take me last, I'll take you. I'll only be first in your life when you come back. 30 years ago this week, I was a year and a half into starting my first ministry and I was told one of the most remarkable stories of God's grace. Karen and Joe, members of our church, and she, they had their children, and she was working hard, and 
he, while raising the kids, and he was traveling, and one day he came home, and he seemed a little distant, and she talked to him, and he came home the next day and seemed a little distant, and a, a little imp whispered in her ear, I wonder if he's being faithful to you. And she said, that's absurd, that's nonsense. And so she just dusted it off and went on with life. But every day, the wall got further apart, and she tried to reach through, and they couldn't touch each other anymore. And one day he said, I gotta do a, fly down to Dallas as a business and make some sales, and I'll be back, honey, in a week. And she said, okay, and they gave him kind of a kiss. And he left, and after a couple of hours, she's, the word came back saying, I wonder. And she said, this is stupid. There's no way that Ken would do this. I'm gonna prove it. So she got in her car and she drove to the airport in Denver going to find his car to make sure and there was a Sheraton right there and their car, his car had this dent because one of their kids had backed it into the garage and she saw it parked in front of the hotel. And she got out of the car and she said she had such rage she didn't know she would ever have. This liar, this betrayer, all the things that they had worked for, all this distance came up, and he's in here with some whore, and he's spending our money in this place, and everything I have done for him, and she came up to the curb, she stepped out, and her ankle twisted, and it rolled, and she sat down, and she swore and said, damn it. And she said those words echoed in her ears. Did she really want God to damn this situation? And she reached into her purse and she said no and she picked up off of the ground and she picked up her shoe with no heel and hobbled to the front desk and said, is there a Ken here? And they said, yeah, he checked in with his wife about three hours ago. And she reached into her purse and she pulled out her credit card and she said, tell him this is from Karen. I wanna pay for this. And I said, I beg your pardon? She said, tell him, this one's on me. And as they sat in my office holding hands, I asked, how in the world did she have that ability to do that? She said, it's easy. In my purse, I've carried ever since my days of catechism in Catholic school, a cross. And his faithfulness to me God saw you and I out sleeping with everybody, betraying him, all the things he had given to us so that we could love him and love others. And he saw us and what he did as his son came to this world and went to that cross and laid down his hands and he said, this one's on me. It's that kind of love. Do you see that God initiated it? Do you see it's when we go to others that have hurt us and harmed us, we don't have the strength to forgive them, but God can do it through us. Do you see the hope that we have in the darkest times, even as Amos, that Christ is with us and the Spirit is working out his will? And in that day, saith the Lord, they will return to me. Let's do that. Let's pray, shall we? Right now, with all of our heads bowed and our eyes closed, comes the time when we respond to the proclaimed word. And if any of you out there, you've been aware of another voice besides mine that's tugging at your heart, and you know it's the Lord. Maybe you've never given your life to him before. You've known the story, but you've been afraid, whatever it is. Or maybe you drifted far away, and our own failures in the world is so jaded as to God, we would think he would never take us back. Trust me, he not only would, he's longing. 
All you need to do is say, Lord, I believe that when you died on that cross, your son and shed his blood, my face was on his heart, and that I am forgiven. And God, I believe you want to restore and renew. Take my life, maybe for the first time or maybe in a recommitment. And you do that, and you'll begin a relationship with him forever. So Lord, we thank you for your love, your relentless love that continues to chase us down and pursue us. We thank you, Lord, for the word of warning you have given to us, Lord, that we have the freedom. We can mess this thing up, or we can turn it over to you. I thank you, Lord, for Bel Air and for how it stands for love and grace and truth in the scriptures. And I pray, Lord, that as we now get a chance to give of our tithes and offerings, that, God, we would bless others that don't know, that, Lord, we would share the talent we have, and that, above all, that Christ would receive all the glory. It's for his sake we pray. Amen.